0: Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we dig into the themes of scripture and connect the dots into applicable lessons. For the past 12 weeks, we have been in the central portion of the book of Numbers. The section of numbers that contains several narratives that capture our imaginations and have become quite iconic in the ages since these stories were first written. These stories, not of great heroism or victory or bravery or honor, instead stories of great treachery and slander and backstabbing and doubt and shame. Stories that paint a picture of humanity at its worst and the God that remains faithful despite our worst. These stories capture our imaginations not because they're epic in nature or content, like the stories of other cultures and their gods. These stories capture our attentions because they are true. And these stories are not simply true in that they happened in history long ago. These stories are true in that they happen in our hearts even today. These stories are us. They provide insight into our darkest hearts and they shine a light into the places that we wish would simply remain dark each of the stories that are recounted in the wilderness reveal the truth of the human heart our depravity our lust our pride doubt faithlessness and rebellion in the face of a holy god and as we read we discover that israel paid for these qualities everyone who was part of these various rebellions whether of speech or action died in the wilderness the faithless never reached the land of promise but they were not destroyed in an instant. They were not all wiped out at once in a plague, even though many did die that way, even though Hashem threatened that at one time. The majority simply died in the course of time, until the old man of Israel had passed away and had been replaced by a new generation, a new man. And this new man, the the new generation, when they arrived on the scene, we read that they too made the same mistakes of the previous generation. They doubt and get angry at God and question his intentions when the water runs out. They grumble and grow impatient when the path gets too long or when the path seems to lead them away from what they had been promised. And they jump at the opportunity to experience a variety in their diet, the opportunity to experience another kind of woman who is not bound by the Torah. When they get the opportunity to worship another god, they do so. A case could be made that the sins of the second generation are in some ways worse than the sins of their fathers. And in this, we find a mercy. We find that it is the pleasure of Hashem to allow each generation to make their own mistakes, to fail to live up to the call that's been placed on their lives for themselves. And in this, we find a difference between the first generation and the second You see, when Israel began the journey of numbers, the previous generation had already made these mistakes in the book of Exodus. On the way out of Egypt, they faced battle, they faced lack of water, they faced lack of food, and Hashem miraculously provided for them each time. And yet, they did not learn from them. When they faced these same challenges a second time, they repeated the mistakes that they had already had the opportunity to turn away from. But the second generation... The second generation we find repenting of their sins, actively deciding to do different when faced with their failures a second time. Sure, the second generation has their issues. They're not perfect, but they are repentant. They are growing, and they are capable of learning. And God is able to use that. He's able to work with a people capable of change. And with that, we find that israel has arrived they're there the ordeals of testing that they faced in the wilderness they're over and now they simply wait for the conquest to begin and we all breathe a sigh of relief (sighs) the glare of the magnifying glass into our own hearts has turned away and then we turn the page and we shudder once again but for completely different reason Now, rather than stories that engage our attention and yet make us uncomfortable, now there comes another kind of uncomfortable text. Now comes more of what numbers began with, lists and counts, and instructions and bits about inheritance and settling and more, in short, text that tends to be boring and confusing. And as we encounter this, we might feel a bit like Israel back in chapter 21. We might be tempted to grow impatient because of the way. It might appear as if we're turning our back on the promise that the narrative has set up, and now we're going to be forced to take a detour before we can get there. And we might be tempted to grumble or disparage or complain because of the text. We might be tempted to say there is no food and water in this text. There's only more dry and barely applicable manna. Just enough to sustain. But what growth can we find in this? And that's going to be our challenge and our pleasure to discover in the upcoming weeks. To engage in this dry text with all of our attention and to pull from it what sustenance we can as we plod through this dry desert. The first two major movements of Numbers are over. Now comes the third movement, the final preparation for taking the land. And today we begin. So let's turn to Numbers chapter 25 verse 10. And read through chapter 26, verse 51. Numbers 25.10-26.51 through 26, 51. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Pinehas, the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel, because he was ardent with my ardor in their midst, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my ardor. Therefore say, See, I am giving him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and to his seed after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was ardent for his Elohim, and made atonement for the children of Israel. And the name of the man of Israel who was struck with the Midianite woman was Zimri the son of Salu, a leader of a father's house among the Shimeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was struck was Cosby the daughter of Zur. He was the head of the people of a father's house of Midian. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Distress the Midianites, and you shall strike them, for they distress you with their tricks, with which they deceived you in the matter of Peor and the matter of Cosbi, the daughter of a leader of Midian, their sister, who was struck in the day of the plague because of Peor. And it came to be after the plague that Hashem spoke to Moshe, and Eleazar son of Aaron the priest, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel, from twenty years old and above, by their fathers' houses, everyone going out to the army in Israel. So Moshe and Eleazar the priest spoke with them in the desert plain of Moab, by the Yarden of Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from twenty years old and above, as Hashem commanded Moshe, and the children of Israel who came out of the land of Mizraim. Reuven, firstborn of Israel, sons of Reuven, of Hanok, the clan of the Hanokites, of Palu, the clan of the Paluites, of Hetron, the clan of the Hetronites, of Carmi, the clan of the Carmites. These are the clans of the Reubenites, and their registered ones were forty three thousand seven hundred and thirty. the son of palu eliav and the sons of eliav nemuel and datan and avaram this datan and avaram were the called ones of the congregation who contended against moshe and against aaron in the company of korach when they contended against hashem and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up together with korach when that company died when the fire consumed 250 men and they became a sign but the sons of korach did not die sons of Shimon according to their clans of Nemuel the clan of Nemulites, of Yamin the clan of the Yemenites of Yachin the clan of the Yachinites of Zerach the clan of the Zerachites of Shaul the clan of the Shaulites these are the clans of the Shimonites 22,200 sons of Gad according to their clans of of the clan of Zephonites; of Hagi the clan of the Hagites of Shuni the clan of the Shunites of Ozni, the clan of the Ozniites; of Eri the clan of the Erites of Arad the clan of the Eradites of Ereli, the clan of the Erelites. These are the clans of the sons of God, according to their registered ones. 40,500. Sons of Yehuda, Er and Onan. And Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And sons of Yehuda, according to their clans, of Shalach, the clan of the Shelenites, of Peretz, the clan of the Paratites, of Zerah, the clan of the Zerahites; the sons of Peretz, of Chetron, the clan of the Chetronites, of Hamul, the clan of the Hamulites, these are the clans of Yehuda according to their registered one, 76,500. Sons of Yissachar, according to their clans, of Tola, the clan of the Tolaites, of Puva, the clan of the Punites, of Yashuv, the clan of the Yashuvites, of Shimron, the clan of the Shimronites. These are the clans of Yissachar, according to their registered ones, 64,300. Sons of Zebulun according to their clans, of Sarad, the clan of the Saradites, of Elon, the clan of the Elonites, of Yachle'el, the clan of the Yachle'elites. These are the clans of the Zebulunites, according to the registered ones, 60,500. Sons of Yosef, according to their clans, by Menesha and Ephraim. Sons of Manesha of Machir, the clans of the Machirites. And Machir brought forth Gilad, of Gilad, the clan of the Giladites. These are the sons of Gilad, of Ezer the clan of the Ezerites, of Helech, the clan of the Helekites, of Asriel, the clan of the Asrielites, of Shechem, the clan of the Shechemites, of Shemida, the clans of the Shemidites, of Hefer, the clan of the Heferites, of Zalophachad, the son of Shefer Zef- had no sons but daughters, and the names of the daughters of Zalophachad, Machla, and Noah, Chogla, Milka, and Zirza. These are the clans of Manesha and their registered ones, 52,700. These are the sons of Ephraim according to their clans, of Shutelach, the clans of the Shutelachites of Becher the clan of the Bechrites of Tachan the clan of the Tachanites these are the sons of Shatulach of Aaron the clans of the Aaronites these are the clans of the sons of Ephraim according to their registered ones thirty-two thousand five hundred; these are the sons of Yosef according to their clans sons of Benjamin according to their clans of Bella the clan of the Bellites of Ashbel the clan of the Ashbelites of Achiram, the clan of the Achiramites; of Shefufam, the clans of the Shefufamites, of Chufam, the clan of the Chufamites. And the sons of Bela were Ard and Naaman, and of Ard, the clan of the Ardites, of Naaman, the clan of the Amites. These are the sons of Benjamin according to their clans and their registered ones, 45,600. These are the sons of Dan according to their clans, of Shucham, the clan of the Shuchamites. These are the clans of Dan according to their clans, all the clans of the Shuchemites, according to the registered ones, 64,400. Sons of Asher, according to their clans, of Yimna, the clan of the Yimnahites, of Yishvi, the clan of the Yishviites, of Beriah, the clan of the Bereites, of the sons of Beriah, of Hever, the clan of the Heverites, of Malkiel, the clan of the Malkielites, and the name of the daughter of Asher was Sarah. These are the clans of the sons of Asher, according to the registered ones, 53,400. Sons of Naphtali, according to their clans, of Yachtzeel, the clan of the Yachtzeelites, of Guni, the clan of the Gunites, of Yetzer the clan of the Yetzerites, of Shilem, the clan of the Shilemites. These are the clans of Naphtali, according to their clans and their registered ones, 45,400. These are the registered ones of the children of Israel, 601,730. The trials in the wilderness are over. But as we begin this week's text, we find something of interest. The Parsha this week, in both the yearly and the three-year cycle, begins in the middle of the story of the tragedy of Baal Peor. And this short narrative is the ending of the story of Balaam and Balak, the king of Moab and the prophet that he hired to curse Israel for him. Over the last two weeks we went through this story and we saw that despite the best efforts of some very powerful people, Israel could not be cursed. Hashem had chosen to bless Israel, and no matter of coercion or bribery could change his mind on that fact. And yet when the narrative returns to Israel, we find them coming under a curse. The very thing that Balak and Balaam and the combined might of Moab and Midian could not accomplish. But when we turn to the book of Revelation, we read the rest of the story nestled in the midst of the letter to the church to Pergamos. Balaam taught Balak. How to curse Israel. Simply put a stumbling block in their way and allow them to curse themselves. Cause Israel to fall into disobedience by tempting them with various pleasures. And so the temptation comes. In this case, it is women and food, both of these associated with another god. And that's all it takes for some in Israel to bend their knee to this other god. And in this, we find the strategy of the enemy. He can't curse you, he can't touch you, but he can cause you to curse yourself. He can entice you to open the door so that he can legitimately gain access to your life, and when he does, his plans are only for your death and destruction. And so as we begin this week's text, we read of one man, a priest, a son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron a man filled with zeal for the sanctity of God and his ways. And this man takes it upon himself to act when someone brings their sin into the community. And when someone parades their sin before those with the heart of repentance. When that sin is brought into the presence of Hashem and flaunted. For the sake of the sanctity of Hashem, his people and his space, Pinchas, Phineas, as he's known in English, he takes up a spear and he destroys the transgressors who were in the community. And it is this action that stops the plague that had broken out. And this action is rewarded by Hashem. Verse 11 in chapter 25 says, Penechas, the son of Elazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was ardent with my ardor in their midst, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my ardor. In some other translations, it says he was jealous with my jealousy, or he was zealous with my zeal. Now, back in Numbers 5, we read of the jealous husband and a trial that he could put his wife through to prove her innocence and to protect her from the laws of the nations that surround her. And now we find Phineas leveraging this same jealousy in an act of destruction, a violent act that destroyed a member of the congregation of Israel, an act that was rewarded by Hashem. And all too often there are some who look to this narrative right here and use it as their excuse for becoming what some would call a Torah terrorist. This passage is an excuse for punishing anyone who disagrees with them on any point of interpretation of the Torah. And this passage becomes an excuse for getting angry at brothers, even to the point of violence. And the answer usually is, well, I'm just being zealous for the law of God. And yet, in this zeal, love is lost. And in the New Testament, we read of a group of men who were just as zealous for the law, so zealous for what they thought the law said that they could not hear the truth of God when it was presented to them. Not only this, the zeal for the law blinded them to the works that were being done in the name and the character of Hashem. In Acts 6 and 7, we read of a man who was zealous for God, likely a Samaritan, a man that I've spoken of before, Stephen, commonly called the first martyr, a man who had been granted the power of the Spirit and who worked signs in the midst of Israel. And we read of men who were zealous for the law, but they saw another preaching about their God and they were not able to refute him in a debate. And so they took another course of action. Acts 6, 8-14 And Stephanos, filled with faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. But some of those were the so-called congregation of the freedmen. Cyreneans, Alexandrians, and those from Kilikia and Asia rose up disputing with Stephanos. But they were unable to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they instigated men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, so they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and this Torah. For we have heard him saying that Yeshua of Nazareth shall overthrow this place and change the institutes which Moses delivered unto us. And the zeal for their temple, and their zeal for the Torah, blinded them of the truth that Stephen spoke. And so they instituted the procedure for dealing with the false prophet from Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13:12 13, through 18 When you hear of someone in your cities which Hashem, your God, gives you to dwell in, saying, Some men, sons of Belial, have gone out of your midst and led the inhabitants of their city astray, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, gods whom you have not known. Then you shall inquire, search out, and ask diligently, and see if the matter is true and established, that this abomination was done in your midst. You shall certainly strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, putting it under the ban, and all that is in it and its livestock with the edge of the sword, and gather all its plunder into the middle of the street, and completely burn with fire the city and all its plunder before Hashem your God. And it shall be a heap forever, never to be built again. And none of that which is put under the band is to cling to your hand so that Hashem turns from the fierceness of his displeasure and shall show you compassion, love you, and increase you, as he swore to your fathers, when you obey the voice of Hashem your God, to guard all his commands which I command you today, to do what is right in the eyes of Hashem your God. And in the case of Stephen, without knowledge of Yeshua as the Messiah, the council did what was required. They were zealous for the law of God. They searched out the matter in a trial, and they destroyed the one from their midst who would make such a claim as to draw others away from what they believed of Hashem. But they were wrong. Their zeal led them to commit another abomination. They shed innocent blood. And there's one man who was present at that event who later wrote much of what we have of the New Testament. Acts seven fifty-seven through 59 and crying out with a loud voice, they stopped their ears, and they rushed upon him with one mind, and they threw him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Shaul, and they were stoning Stephanos as he was calling out, saying, Master Yeshua, receive my spirit. Shaul was there in the Hebrew, Paul in the Greek. And if we were to examine the letters of Paul, we would find that he spoke on the zeal that he had that day in several places. Galatians one thirteen through 13-14 says, For you have heard of my former behavior in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the assembly of God and ravaged it. And I progressed in Judaism beyond many of my age and my race, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul's zeal for the traditions of his fathers caused him to persecute and ravage the true assembly of God. In Philippians, Paul speaks on his zeal in this way, in Philippians 3, 3 3-6. For we are the circumcision who are serving God in the Spirit and boasting in Messiah Yeshua, and do not trust in the flesh, though I too might have trust in the flesh. If anyone else thinks to trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the race of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, according to the Torah, a Pharisee, according to zeal, persecuting the assembly, according to righteousness that is in the law, having become blameless. Paul acknowledges that it was his zeal that led him to persecute the true assembly of God. His zeal for the law, and not for the law itself, but for the way that his fathers interpreted the law. And it is zeal misapplied that Paul speaks of when he speaks of his brothers, the Jews, in Romans 10. Romans 10, 1-3 Truly, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is for salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For not knowing the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Paul says the Jews, they do have zeal for God, but they pursue their zeal out of ignorance of the God that they serve. They do not have, as it's said about Phinehas in this chapter, he was zealous with my zeal, the true zeal of God, the zeal that knows God. They're zealous with their own zeal. They're zealous with their own righteousness. That being said, there is a zeal of God that Paul does recommend. It's a zeal that those who are of Messiah should practice. Romans twelve six through 13 says, Now having different gifts according to the favor which was given to us, let us use them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of faith, if serving in the serving, or he who is teaching in the teaching, or he who is encourages in the encouragement, or he who is sharing in sincerity. He who is leading in diligence, he who shows compassion joyously. Let love be without hypocrisy. Shrink back from what is wicked, cling to what is good. In brotherly love, tenderly loving towards one another, in application, giving preference to one another. Not idle in duty, zealous in spirit. Serving the master, rejoicing in the expectancy. Enduring under pressure, continuing steadfastly in prayer imparting to the needs of the holy ones, pursuing kindness towards strangers. Zealous in spirit is in the midst of that. Zealous in the gifts of the spirits, and zealous in the good works that the spirit produces. And these good works, this fruit are these, Galatians 5, 22-23, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, trustworthiness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no Torah. And the gifts are these. First Corinthians 12, 6-10. And there are different kinds of workings, but it is the same God who is working in all. And to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for profiting. For to one is given a word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another a word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, and to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the same spirit, and to another operations of powers, and to another prophecy, and to another discerning of spirits, and to another kinds of tongues, and to another interpretation of tongues. First Corinthians twelve, twenty seven through twenty eight says, And you are a body of Messiah, and members individually, and God has appointed these in the assembly. First emissaries second prophets third teachers after that miracles the gifts of healing helps ministrations and kinds of tongues these are the areas where we are to be zealous according to paul in romans 12 zealous in the spirit zealous in the operating of the spirit and notice that nowhere on that list was the gift of judgment or the fruit of judgment It's only once we have these qualities in the spirit that we can then enter into a place of judgment against others. You see, Phineas was patient. He did not go out attacking whoever he found and slaying all of the evildoers. He did not go seeking to destroy his brothers, examining their every thought and action to find fault that he might condemn them. Phineas waited for God's justice to run its course. He let the ringleaders be hung before Hashem, as Hashem had commanded. He allowed the judges to go out and to slay those who were being disobedient. He allowed even the plague to run among the people, killing thousands. He stood his post in the tabernacle and fulfilled his role of protecting the sanctity of the holy space. But then he spotted a man who had escaped all those other forms of judgment. A man who came close to the tabernacle on the holy space that was his charge. And this man paraded his sin before those who were earnestly seeking God's face. It was a man who was unrepentant and defiant in his sin. And so Phineas finally walked out the instructions of Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. Only after all other forms of judgment had been exercised. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13 I wrote to you in my letter not to keep company with those who whore, and I certainly did not mean with those of this world who whore, or with the greedy of gain, or swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone called a brother, if he is one who whores, or greedy of gain, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are inside? But God judges those who are outside, and put away the wicked one from among you. Phineas identified a man who was persistent in his sin and unrepentant, a man who had been there for all of the victories, a man who had seen that previous generation pass away, a man who had failed with the rest in the previous plagues of the second generation and had found grace. And that man spit in the face of Hashem and abused the grace that he had been granted and chose to remain defiant. He did not learn from the mistakes of his past. He escaped the judgment of God and man and yet attempted to remain in the congregation of Israel. It's this man that Phinehas killed. Not someone that he simply disagreed with. Not someone who wore just any mixed thread. Not someone who ate out of a crockpot on Sabbath. Not someone who disagreed on the shape of the earth. And not someone who disagreed on a calendar or finer points of dietary restriction. It was someone who remained defiant in sin and demonstrated in action that he had not had a heart change. He still had that old man in him, the one who desired variety rather than this dry bread. It is this that Phineas is rewarded for his actions. And what is the reward that Phineas received for his actions? Phineas is given Hashem's covenant of peace. And Phineas is granted an eternal priesthood. From this point on, all priests were to come, not from just any son of Aaron, but rather they're to come from the sons of Phineas specifically, And this covenant of peace, what does this mean? Does this mean that Phineas would only see and experience peace in his day? That he would never be asked to go to war? That he could sit back and let the others do the fighting? I mean, he had a covenant of peace after all. But if this is the answer, then this covenant is broken in just a few chapters. In Numbers 31, 6 through 7, we read, and Moshe sent them on the campaign, 1,000 from each tribe, and them and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest on the campaign with the holy utensils and the trumpets for sounding in his hand. And they fought against the Midianites as Hashem had commanded Moshe, and they killed all the males. Phinehas went to war with Israel when they fought against Midian. He was on the front lines so to speak, armed only with the trumpet and the holy items. So it cannot mean this covenant of peace. It cannot mean that he only ever gets peace and will not ever face war. So what does it mean? What exactly is a covenant of peace? Well, to discover this, let's examine a few more places in Scripture that speak of a covenant of peace. Isaiah 54, 7-13 for a little while, I have forsaken you, but with great compassion, I shall gather you in an overflow of wrath. I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving-kindness, I shall have compassion on you, said Hashem, your redeemer, for this is the waters of Noach to me, and that I have sworn that the waters of Noach would never again cover the earth. So I have sworn not to be angry with you, nor to rebuke you. For though the mountains be removed and the hills be shaking, my loving kindness is not removed from you, nor is my covenant of peace shaken, said Hashem, who has compassion on you. O you afflicted one, tossed with the storm and not comforted, see, I am setting your stones in antimony and shall lay your foundations with sapphires and shall make your battlements of rubies, your gates of crystal and all your walls of precious stones and all your children taught by Hashem. And the peace of your children, great. This passage, if you read the entire chapter of Isaiah 54, it speaks of a time of great tumult. It's a time of uncertainty. And it's in this time of uncertainty that this covenant of peace will be established. And if we take our cue from this, then the covenant of peace means peace in the midst of chaos, certainty and steadfastness, even if called to war. If this is the case, then the other two times that we read of a covenant of peace, we will find them reflecting the same idea. And we find both other cases a mention of a covenant of peace in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34, 23-28 And I shall raise up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, Hashem, shall be their God, and my servant David a prince in their midst. I, Hashem, have spoken. And I shall make a covenant of peace with them and shall make evil beasts cease from the land and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the forest. And I shall make them and the places all around my hill a blessing and shall cause showers to come down in their season. Showers of blessing they are. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth yield her increase. And they shall be safe in their land and shall know that I am Hashem. When I have broken the bars of their yoke I shall deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them, and they shall no longer be prey for the nation, and the beasts of the earth shall not devour them, and they shall dwell safely with no one to make them afraid. In this passage, the covenant of peace is connected with the idea of dwelling safely in a wilderness and sleeping in a forest. Both of these places are places of uncertainty, wilderness being dangers around every corner as we're reading of currently. And yet the covenant of peace provides a sense of safety, a sense of peace in this place of uncertainty. The final mention of the covenant of peace is in Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-three through 28 And they shall no longer defile themselves with their idols, nor with their disgusting matters, nor with any of their transgressions. And I shall save them all from their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and I shall cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I be their God. While David my servant is king over them, and they shall have one shepherd, and walk in my judgments, and guard my laws, and shall do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell in it, and their children, and their children's children forever, and my servant David be their prince forever, and I shall make a covenant of peace with them an everlasting covenant it is with them. And I shall place them and increase them and shall place my holy place in their midst forever. And my dwelling place shall be over them and I shall be their God and they shall be my people. And the nations shall know that I, Hashem, in setting Israel apart when my holy place is in their midst forever. This passage is one that is very popular because it is in this passage that we read of a valley of dry bones being brought to life, and the two sticks grafted together as one in God's hand. And this is how the passage ends. This time, yes, a promise of peace is made with the people of God as they are sanctified in the midst of the nations. But in this passage, we also see part of the cause of this covenant of peace. They shall no longer defile themselves with their idols, nor their disgusting matters, nor their transgressions. It's exactly what Phineas demonstrated in this passage. The defilements of the nations destroyed in the midst of Israel. The zeal for God, the zeal for Hashem, driving the people of Hashem to cleansing themselves, their communities, and their hearts, and their actions. And this is the reward that Phineas was granted this first covenant of peace. He was the first to be granted safety in the midst of battle, peace in times of war. Though a thousand may fall at his side and ten thousand may fall at his right hand, he will dwell safely in the midst of it because of his zeal for Hashem and his ways. And this is why it's so vitally important that we learn proper zeal for Hashem and his ways and how to differentiate it from the zeal of destruction. Because one will lead to a covenant of peace, knowing a peace in the midst of war, battle, uncertainty, and confusion. The other will lead you to destroying your brothers and sisters and can lead to, if not literally, then at least metaphorically, a shedding of innocent blood. Moving on in the text for the remainder of the Parsha, we read only of the second census of Israel, the census of the second generation. As we discussed before, the census that was taken at this point was an accounting of men of war. Those who were to go forward into battle for the promised land had their heads lifted up and were given honor of warriors of Israel. You see, the previous generation, they were to go to battle. They were counted in the same way. They were given the honor of warriors. But when the time came, they failed. They grew afraid at the prospect of facing giants. And in their fear, they slandered the land of promise. They slandered the plan that Hashem had given them, and they slandered the leadership of Israel. And they threw accusations of evil intent at those who were looking out for their good. So this honor was taken from them and given to their children. And now their children are adults. The faithless generation has passed away. And now Israel is ready to move forward into the land. They are ready to do what is necessary despite the fearful things that stand in their way. The second generation is now counting the cost of following Hashem and His ways, and this time they are ready. This time they have something that the first generation did not have. No, it is not more men. In fact, Israel has 1,820 fewer men this time around as they prepare for this conquest. No, it's not a weaker enemy. The enemy that is in the land is as large and as fearful as it ever was. No, it's not perfect obedience. We've seen them fail at the waters of Meribah. We've seen them fail in the matter with the serpents. We've seen them fail at Baal Peor. No, it's not experience. Israel of the previous generation had experience in battle and had seen Hashem give them victory in the battle with the Amalekites. So what is it that Israel has this time around that their fathers were lacking? They have faith. They've been tested and tried by the furnace of the wilderness and that trial has taught them faith in Hashem and to be faithful to His word. Faithful to care for them. Faithful to protect them. Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 6, and you shall remember that Hashem, your God, led you all the way these forty years in the wilderness to humble you, to prove you, to know what is in your heart, whether you guard his commands or not. And he humbled you and he let you suffer hunger, and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, to make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Hashem. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. Thus you shall know in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so Hashem your God disciplines you. Therefore you shall guard the command of Hashem your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. Hashem humbled Israel to make them know that man lives only at Hashem's good pleasure. And in the midst of this trial they did not want for food or clothing. He was faithful to provide for their basic necessities and to cover their shame. But then added to this, James 1, through 2-4 says, My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the proving of your faith works endurance, and let endurance have a perfect work, so that you be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The trials that Israel faced in the wilderness built in them patience, and that patience was arrived at through the testing of their faith the hardening and refining so that there was no doubt when time came that Hashem would take care of them and provide for them. And as James continues, James 1, 5-8, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it shall be given to him. But he should ask in faith, not doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man should not think that he shall receive whatever from the master. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This Israel knew that Hashem was with them. They knew his ways and his character. They knew his power and authority. And they did not doubt. They were not tossed like the wave in the sea. And finally, they had among them men of zeal. Men who loved Hashem and His ways and were willing to take whatever steps were necessary to protect the sanctity of the community of Hashem. And this is our lesson for today. When we first come to faith in Yeshua, things will look great. Freedom, redemption, miraculous wonders as our bondage to sin and death is destroyed. But then life sets in. The wilderness trial arrives. And at this time, we often do without. Things seem to fall apart. We lose friends. We lose jobs. We lose respect and honor. The world that we once inhabited looks on us as if we'd grown three heads. And the temptation comes to turn our backs on our salvation, to return to Egypt of our past, and to go back to the way that things were when life was easy when we didn't have to worry about going without. This new God that we follow, he sometimes he seems to ask too much from us, more than we're willing to give, more than we feel that we have. If he asks anything else, there will be nothing left of me. And that is the point. That me that existed before has to die. That old generation that first encountered Hashem must pass away. And a new, tested, tried, and proven me in the image of Hashem and with His Spirit must be raised up in His place. Because the old me can't take the land. The old me can't minister to the nations. The old me can't be victorious. Because the old me is caught up in the things of the flesh. But the new me, the reborn me, the me of faith that has made it through the cauldron, the me that does not trust in me, but rather trusts in him, that me is capable. So when you face the trial, your prayer should be Yeshua's prayer for Peter in Luke 22, 31-32. And the master said, Peter, Peter, see, Satan has asked for you to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. No, I have not prayed that you be delivered from this trial. No, I pray that your faith should not fail you in this trial. And then when the trial is over, when you have been strengthened, then it is your turn to turn around and to strengthen your brothers who are going through their own trials. Your victory Your victory is not your own. Your victory and your growth belong to all of your brothers. And so this is my prayer to all of you. When the trials come, and they will certainly come, and frankly for many of you, they have come, and you are in the midst of them even now. I pray that your faith will not fail in the midst of the trial. That you will be strengthened by the trial. That you will come out on top a new man. A man filled with the Spirit of God who is capable to stand against giants. Because your brothers need you. Your brothers who have not yet been sifted need your strength because their time is coming. Their time of trial will come. And in the midst of the trial, having others who have been through and who have come out on the other side is one of the greatest assets of our body. And that is what Hashem has designed for His people. Not that our lives should be easy and comfortable. Rather that our lives should be full of trial because each trial is an opportunity for victory. And in this victory we grow. And as we grow we draw closer to the God of life. So seek life. 'er Deir Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or exodusroadband.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.